This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 108. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the show. My name is Michael Blanc. I'm really excited that you're here to learn with me about apartment building investing. Today on the show, I have Andrew Cushman. He now owns over 1,800 units, totally crushing it. And again, not very many people care about how I grew my business from 100 to 20 million units, right? So we got to go back and really look at the first deal he did. And, and the first deal he did was a 92 unit. And I kind of grill him a little bit. I said, Andy, you know, you know, a lot of people are complaining about getting into multifamily and, you know, let me, let me do some single family houses for the next five or 10 years. I said, can you please help us with some advice about, you know, is it the right time to get into multifamily? Um, how do I find deals? Isn't it, isn't everything kind of too expensive, you know, and what do I do if I don't have the resources? And it's just too hard, right? So he's going to provide us some encouragement, some tips on how to break into that first unit. So with that, let's get right into the interview with Andrew Cushman. Andrew, welcome to the show today. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. All right. Very good. Tell us a little bit how you even got into real estate in the beginning because you're crushing it in multifamily and I just can't wait to unpack you, but kind of unwind it a little bit and tell us a little bit how you got into it. I took the standard route into real estate by getting a chemical engineering degree. That's what I, that's yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, four and a half years of uh, really easy courses. That was a placeholder because I, even as a high school student, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know how to do that. So I just figured I'd go get a good job until I figured that out. So I got that degree, got a job as an engineer. A few years later, got married. For that seven and a half year period, both individually and then with my wife, you know, I kept trying all these little businesses to get free of my job. You know, we made popcorn in our house, flavored popcorns, and it actually it's tough tasted good. But we, you know, we destroyed the house, and and like, okay, this isn't gonna work. We tried vending, we tried you know flipping cars. I mean, all this stuff. And each time we made some money, but we realized that it was just gonna be a replacement job, and probably even harder than what we were doing. And it took several years to come across real estate. And we read an article, actually, it was in the Wall Street Journal. It was about a guy who was flipping houses. And we were like, well, you know, maybe we can do this. We're in Southern California, right? There's lots of properties and values are good. And so we looked into and learned how to flip single family properties. And at the time, we were focusing on pre-foreclosures. So people who hadn't lost their house, but the bank was threatening to take it. And we said, you know what? This is something that we can do. And so what we did is we said, we're going to do this and we're going to do it until we get a deal. And then if we don't like it, we can quit then, but we're not going to quit until we get a deal. The only problem was, is that business was relying on cold calling people in financial distress. And I was an engineer, so I wasn't exactly good on the phone. You know, my wife, I found this out later before we were dating. She used to make lists of things in advance to call when she was going to call me because I was so bad on the phone. And then I went into a business that relied on cold calling. And so it took me 4,576 phone calls to get that first deal. It was agonizing. But we got it. And when we did and we sold it, we made as much as I made all year at my job. So I said, you know what? This is it. There's no better time than now. Walked in and quit. Went full-time into flipping single family. Did that for four and a half years. And then we said, you know, this has been great, but it's not going to last forever. Where are all these people going? They can't buy houses. Well, I guess they're probably going to go into apartments. We're in a recession. We're going to be coming out of a recession. Well, okay, that's also good for apartments. So let's go into apartments. We went and found a mentor and immediately went out and bought. Well, it took six months to get it, but we went and bought our first deal was 
92 units in uh, Macon, Georgia, which is the opposite side of the country. I'm in California. Uh, it was mostly vacant. It was successful, but quite the learning experience. So I'm that's kind of the... <laughs> I'm sure it was. Thank you for that. Let's go back a little bit and dig around. First of all, what was the matter with your single fangle house investing? Why were you even thinking about something else? Because you had a pretty good thing going there. We did. We just realized that I mean, we had a really good year in 2009, 2010, but at that point, you know, our model was based on buying from people with equity. And at that point in the cycle, there was getting to be fewer and fewer people with equity. And everyone else was catching on. There was getting to be a lot, a lot more competition. So we just kind of want to just say, put ourselves in front of the next big cycle and the next big thing. Also, the problem with flipping is it can be great money, but it's a job. I mean, you're only as good as your last flip, right? You, have, you put the check in the bank and you've got nothing left. With multifamily, you do a great deal. And as long as you hold that, you've got income coming in for however long you're holding that property. And you can get to the point where you're you know, financially free and or you don't have to do a deal. And so we really like those aspects. Yeah, same thing for me. I flipped three dozen houses, right? And I'm like, man, I'm great in money. But wait a minute, I'm not. I'm still working. Like I just swapped one job for another. And that's when I kind of said, hey, man, let's, let's revisit what we're doing here. Yes, we're doing real estate. Yes, we're working for ourselves. But that's not really what I was looking for. So, you know, it took me a while to kind of figure out that multifamily is the way to go. Now, you made that decision in your mind and you went big right away. I mean, a lot of guys, you know, and there's nothing wrong with going out and getting a duplex or, or a tenplex or whatever case may be. You went 92 units. So tell us how you got into that. Uh, a little bit of naivety, and uh, <laughs> but uh, kind of like the single family, we committed to we're going to go do this. And, you know, basically what we did, at, you know, at the time we hired a mentor, we went and just found somebody who was in the industry, they had done 1800 units. We worked out a deal with them, said, Hey, can you coach us? Hire, you know, whatever. We weren't just doing it blind. We did have somebody to guide us. Otherwise, going to 92 units would have been even more crazy than it was. And so, what we did is we decided we liked the Southeast, we liked Atlanta. We started there. And then at the time, I don't really use LoopNet much now, but LoopNet had a mapping feature where you could just kind of scroll around. And so, we just started in Atlanta and started following the freeways out. And we'd find brokers in those towns and then start forming relationships with those brokers. And a broker in Macon had this property and brought it to us. We made an offer on it and ended up getting it. So That is awesome. All right. Now, how did you finance it? Did you self-fund it? Did you raise money for it? How did you kind of get into it on the finance side? Yeah, that process, probably the most stressful six months of my life, probably shortened my life by a couple of years. But the property was 75% vacant, built in the 60s and 70s. You drove through it and the front doors were just open which is usually not a good sign. So there was no financing that thing. Um, plus it was 2011. So banks weren't lending. So it was a all cash syndication. So we did not personally have the money. We, I mean, we had enough money to like you know make the deposit and pay the third party reports and all that, but we didn't have the money to buy the property. And so we said, all right, we're going to do a syndication. We need to raise a total of 1.2 million, which is the rehab and the property purchase reached out to our you know, usual friends and family, people who had invested with us on single family, and then also word of mouth. And like I said, we had to raise 1.2 million. We thought going into it, we had 800,000 raised already, which is why we were confident that we could finish it off. Well, it turns out the two guys that comprise that 800,000, one of them was lying to us and never had it. And the other one, he wanted to be in control of the deal and run it. And that wasn't... So we failed to vet those two guys. And you know, 30 days into this thing, we lost three quarters of our raise and put ourselves in a pretty tough situation. So that was a lesson learned. So, uh, also vet your <laughs> vet your investors. <laughs> so, how did, so how did you get out of this? I mean, now you went from what you thought was three quarters away there to like zero. And now you're starting to bite your nails up. So what'd you do? Did you hit the phones again? What'd you do? 
Yeah, yeah. We hit the phones. We just talked to just everybody we knew that was investing or that knew us. It was to say, hey, who else do you know that might be interested in this kind of opportunity? Because we knew the deal was still good and the opportunity was good. We didn't lose the investors because they didn't like the deal. We just lost them because we didn't do a good job of figuring out who they really were. We extended closing like three times. We actually went back to the seller and said, hey, can you carry a note for a couple hundred grand for three years? He agreed to do that. Wow. Um, and again, this was in 2011. So it was a little more, you know, buyers had a little more leverage than we do now. Just by the couple of days before we had to close, we got just enough to close it. And then for like several months after, we eventually did finish it off. You raised more money afterwards. Yeah. That's so you got enough money to close on it, but it didn't have maybe all the repairs and renovations you needed. Exactly. I mean, we needed like $600,000 in repairs, but you're not going to spend that all on day one. So it's okay if you get that later. It's happened to us as well. We just got enough raise for whatever reason just to close it. And then we're raising after you close. So just listen to yes, you can do that. You can actually raise money after you close the deal. Now, you said that this was quite the learning experience, this being one of them. What, what else happened? Well, yeah, yeah. So this was our first deal. We underestimated the renovation. So when you buy a 1960s built property that's been in bad repair, poorly cared for for 15 years, and you start peeling off the layers, it's like peeling the layers off a rotten onion. Right? I mean, every one, it's like, oh my, what is this? You know, you take off the siding and you realize the you know the studs are just rotted out and gone, or remove a sink and all the plumbing collapses. Or back then, we didn't do a good job screening neighborhoods. As you're renovating, someone decides to come in and do $50,000 worth of damage so they can get $200 worth of copper pipes out of your walls. Copper. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So that added to it as well. So yeah, we learned about properly screening your neighborhood. We learned about better estimating rehabs, how to better track rehab spending, how to hire the right contractors. We learned a lot. And a lot of systems and procedures that we have in place today you know, kind of were generated partially by that deal. And and, and, I mean, it ended well. We sold it for more than something like two and a half times what we bought it for. And it it was fine. But I would definitely not do that deal again today. And so you said naivete earlier on. You look back on some of your early deals and this normally includes the first deal. Like we get on with happy ears on, you know, and we get in. And this is the good thing. If we didn't have the naivete, we would probably not do a deal. Like you said, you probably wouldn't do that deal. You're also in a different position now. You can probably pick and choose a little bit more. But in the beginning, you you don't have that luxury. Now, why would you not do that deal again? I should clarify. I have no regrets about doing that deal because if I didn't do that deal, I wouldn't be here today. So I'm not saying I wish I didn't do that deal. What I would do now is, is I would just, as a first deal, I would never recommend someone do something that big and that distressed unless it's just going to be your full-time job. And even then, I still wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. Let's talk about why is that first deal different? So you talked about different ways. Why would you see that first deal? Why would you talk to someone else about your first deal and carve it out from some of the rest? So how is that first deal different? You mean in terms of the operations of it or just getting yourself to do it? Getting yourself to do it, the importance of the first deal, maybe some of the requirements that you would underwriting criteria that you have that you didn't have back then. In other words, you just said, look, you don't regret doing it, but you wouldn't do that same deal again today. So if you're advising someone do their first deal, what would you tell them about their first deal? Do something that's just outside of your comfort zone, right? Because if you're comfortable, you're probably not doing what you need to be doing or growing. The key thing is just begin with the end in mind, right? If you want to just have a 50 unit in your retirement account and you're going to manage that and that's your retirement, then begin with that in mind. If you want to own 2,000 units, begin with that in mind and then work backwards and say, okay, what first deals do I need to do to get there? So if you want to own 2,000 units, You're not going to go buy a fourplex and then go buy a six unit. You need to go to syndication, right? 
So is your plan 10 units or is it 100? And there's no reason you don't have to take the path I took of start in single family and then work your way up. The reason I started in single family is because I didn't have a plan for multifamily. I didn't figure out multifamily until later. The key is, is to look for first deals that fit, that will lead you to your end goal, and then go do that first deal. Some general principles, whatever you do, do not buy in the hood. It's not worth the headache. And they basically never work out financially as well as they look on paper if you do that. You know, don't underestimate rehab, don't undercapitalize deals. So if you think you need 300,000, raise 350 or 400. You can always give the money back to your investors later, but you don't ever want to have to go ask them to give you more. You only want to give money back. You don't, you don't ever want to go ask for more. Especially at this point in the cycle, I, you know, I talked to a lot of people and they're like, oh, I'm going to save up cash and just wait till the next crash and all that. One of my business partners, David Osborne, has a great saying. And what he says is, is don't wait to buy real estate buy real estate and wait. And so what that means is, you know, yeah, we are kind of in the mature part of a cycle, but if you go do your first deal and you've analyzed it right and you've made sure that it cash flows well, even if prices come down, we hit a soft spot, a recession, if you cash flow well, you can hold that deal indefinitely, right? No one loses their property because the value goes down. People lose their property because they can't pay the mortgage or they can't pay the bills or they didn't have good cash flow. So Learn how to analyze a deal properly and just go get one done. I hear this all the time. It's too hard to find deals. I'm going to wait it out because something's happening. It's hard to find deals. You know, what would you tell that person, right, who wants to do that? Well, so yeah, absolutely right. It is hard to find deals. But if it was easy, then there wouldn't be any good money in it, right? I mean, you, you hear that all the time. It's a matter of, well, how bad do you want it? You know, like I wanted to be out of my job, so I made 4,500 agonizing phone calls. Yeah, we probably buy one out of 100 deals we look at, right? So if, are you willing to analyze 100 deals to get a, a property that could you know, start your new career? And also, it's not a waste of time to look at you know, 100 deals. The more bad deals you look at, the better you get at instantly spotting good deals, right? And it's a learning process. You learn to spot things. Oh, this looks funny in the P&L. Yeah, it's hard to find deals. But let me tell you, when you get a great deal, you started your career. Because these days, getting a great deal is the hardest part of the business. If you get a great deal, you'll find the money. You, you can raise the money yourself or you can bring it to someone else who's already in business. And if it's a great deal, odds are they'll be happy to partner with you or fund it. I can tell you right now, if someone were to bring me a nice 150-unit property in the markets that I work in, and they've analyzed it right, and it truly is a great deal, they just bought me as a partner. right? I'm going to either pay them a fee, give them a piece of equity, and I'm going to do that deal. Yes, it's hard to find deals, but it's worth it. I mean, are people doing deals? Are people actually getting deals done right now? Yeah. I mean, we just closed one February 28th. We was 150 units. It was off market. Myself and one other guy saw it. It appraised for significantly more than we bought it for. We've only owned it two months. The units that we're leasing, we're getting $125 rent increases. It's been going fantastic. We bought one um, 18 months ago, directly from actually an owner. We bought it for four million fifty thousand, and based off today's NOI, it would probably sell for about eight million, right? So that's only eighteen months ago. The market hasn't changed much in the last two years. The market was hot then; it's still hot now. It was very hard to find that deal, but yes, they are out there. Absolutely, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, we just closed a hundred sixty-eight unit deal. We have a hundred sixty-one unit under contract and a fifty-six under contract, and. These are deals that our students are sourcing out there, right? I think the biggest That's the, awesome. the biggest misconception though is that, you know, I can make a couple offers and oh my gosh, no one accepted my offer. 
it just must not be working. And the one to 100 ratio, we use the same kind of ratio. And in that 100, you actually come close to one or two deals in the process, but you don't close on it for some reason. You close on that one. But you got to be prepared to look through deals. And by the way, it's the same thing for single family houses, wholesaling or flipping. I mean, it's still a numbers game. You can't make a couple offers and expect to get one accepted. So, you know, the people who are hustling out there, like you said, who are analyzing deals, they're getting deals done. And the guys who are not, frankly, are not. Well, I was going to say also, you know, especially on that first deal, don't be looking for the home run. Look for the base hit. And, and I don't mean do a bad deal, right? I mean, there's never a good time to do a bad deal and it's never a bad time to do a good deal, right? But if you're looking for the home run, the perfect deal, it's just not going to happen, right? I mean, if you've seen that movie uh, Moneyball about the 2002 Oakland A's, right? They didn't become a powerhouse team by hiring a bunch of home run hitters. They had a tight budget. They went out and just found a bunch of guys that consistently got on base. I'm thinking that season, they won 20 consecutive games, right? So if you start went out and got started in your real estate business and you do 20 consecutive solid deals that aren't home runs, are you going to have a good business? Yeah, you are. Do the analysis right. Make sure it is a good deal, but don't wait for that deal that you can say, oh, I can buy this for a million and turn around in two months and sell it for two. You'll probably never get started. You know, just a solid base hit. Yeah, and I found almost all the deals we've done are somewhere in the gray zone, meaning that they're not a no-brainer, they're not a home run. There's always something that you know bothers us. I wish it weren't yeah. this or that. If this were like this, so you're never going to find the perfect deal ever. Like it's just not going to happen. And so you're constantly operating in the gray zone. Should I do this? Should I not do this? And you're always dealing with some self-doubt. But the advice not to have a home run, especially on your first deal, like if you do your third or fourth deal, you can become a little more picky. But the first deal is so, so important that as long as it's under L is conservative and you're not crushing it, that's okay. So that's really good advice about the first deal. Now, what's your advice to people who are a little bit held back by, you know, they don't have the money for this stuff and you went pretty big right away. But, you know, what kind of advice do you have to someone who says, ah, you know, I don't have the money for that right now? The best thing to do to get started is really to do two things simultaneously. And one is start analyzing deals because that will take a while and start building your network of potential investors or money sources, right? So like you said, your students you know, bring you deals and if it's a good deal, you'll fund it, right? So that's a perfect example. Maybe it's you or maybe it's someone meets at Could be you. a meetup yeah. or something like yeah. that. So the two things to start doing right away are looking at deals and building the investor network. And you can say, oh, I don't have a deal yet. What am I going to tell them? Put together an example deal and say, hey, look, this is the kind of stuff I'm looking at when I get one. Not it. When I get one, do you know anybody that might be interested in investing? And notice I said, do you know? Because you're not doing the kind of slightly awkward thing of, well, do you have any money? You're saying, do you know anybody? And number one, hopefully they do know somebody. But number two, they might go, well, wait, wait a second. What about me? How come I don't get to be in this? Right. So now all of a sudden you flipped it around. They're coming to you. And it's a much easier, more natural conversation. So do those things at the same time. The other thing I'll say right now, especially in this market, a great deal, it's like a homing pigeon, right? If you have a homing pigeon and you send it out there and it doesn't come back, you didn't just lose your homing pigeon. You just lost a regular pigeon, right? In this market, you find a great deal and you put it out there and you can't get it funded. You didn't get a great deal. You just got a deal. Right. So if you get a great deal in this market and it really is a great deal, and you go to guys like Michael or myself or people you meet at meetups or on bigger pockets or whatever, you will get it funded. Right. I mean, don't just sit back and say, oh, I'm not going to worry about it. I'll do that at the last minute. Definitely don't let that hold you back. There is more money than deals right now. Talk about the importance or the not importance of partnering and getting started or even growing the business. It's absolutely critical. 
It saves you from making mistakes. It accelerates your learning curve. It gives you more legitimacy because that's another thing. Oh, I don't have a track record. I don't have this and that. Well, great. Partner with somebody so that when you're talking with lenders, when you're talking with investors, you're talking with brokers, you can say we. Multifamily is very much a we business. So you partner with someone who has a track record, who has the experience. You can say, we own 1,800 units. We've done this. We just closed our fifth loan with Fannie Mae. And suddenly you just leapfrog from where you are. And then also you can go by yourself. You can go far, but with a team and multiple people, you can go further and faster, right? I mean, you'll just accomplish more. So partnering is huge, especially if you don't have the money, it's going to be a requirement. And if you're going for like agency debt, like Fannie or Freddie, they require experience. So you're going to have to bring a partner on to get those loans. That's right. It is all about the team. And it's amazing how many people actually partner to be successful. It's not a one-man sport here. And we didn't mention this before, but that's actually what I ended up doing. After that first deal, I was like, holy cow, that almost killed us. So we went to the guy who, who was our mentor and said, hey, you know, we got along really well. What do you think about partnering? And you know, he's like, yeah, actually, you know what? Like, let's do that. So our next two deals we did as partners with him. To this day, we actually did another one with him just this past summer. So we've done six deals with him. You know, we've done quite a few outside of that. You know, that relationship has continued and it's been beneficial for both of us. Yeah, I mean, we still partner all the time. I mean, we don't just partner with students, but we actually partner with people who raise money for us, right? We just work them into the GP and this allows us to actually raise more and more money for this deal. So we're still partnering, right? And yeah. I don't think we'll ever stop partnering because if we stop partnering, that means our deals aren't, aren't big enough, right? <laughs> right? Exactly. We can do yeah, ourselves, yeah. You know, so we're all pushing our comfort zone. So. What was like one of your biggest aha moments in life? Well, in life was I met my wife. That's the one I want. But uh, I guess one of them certainly could be when we came across real estate and said, you know what, this really is the business that has the highest potential of setting us on the path to financial independence. And the reasons are, is, you know, I'm not a, a super creative guy. I'm not going to create the next app or the next technological company. I'm not going to cure a disease and become a billionaire. I'm not the guy who's likely to do that. But with real estate, there's tons of ways to do it. It's super creative, but basically everything's been done before. Yeah, I figure out what I can do is practice what I call, you know, in the corporate world, R&D stands for research and development. Well, I like to say rip off and duplicate. And I don't mean that in a malicious sense. What I mean is, is everything in real estate's been done. Figure out what you want to do. Find someone else who's already doing it successfully. Get them to teach it to you or find a way for you to learn it. And then go duplicate that. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just Go find someone who's doing it and copy them and go do it. And there's enough for everybody. There's no need for a scarcity mindset. Yeah. Now, I've done a bunch of stuff in my life and I don't regret having done any of it, right? Because you kind of become the person you are based on what you've done. Absolutely. However, sometimes I wish I can go back to my younger self and sit me down much sooner than I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? I would love to sit myself down and give myself some advice. So if you could do the same thing, how far would you travel back and what would you tell yourself? I'd travel back to when I was about 22 or 23. And I'd probably say, hey, don't worry about working because in 2018, you're going to invent time travel and make a killing off of that. But after that, I would say, hey, go straight into multifamily and go straight into B properties. Forget D completely. But between C, B, and A, B has that perfect blend of solid cash flow, solid appreciation, and they're generally in good areas. We tend to get the highest returns for the least amount of effort and headache. They also tend to do really, really well in recessions when those come. So I, instead of starting with the rougher properties that I started with, I would start with B properties and I would have skipped single family and gone straight into multifamily. All right, guys, you heard it here. This is what I keep talking about, right? But we talked about some of the reasons you can do that, right? You build your team, you start raising money. 
You don't need to flip a bunch of houses. I did the same thing you did, right? For for many years. I I'm didn't like, know you know, <laughs> I don't know any better either. No one said, Hey Michael, you know what? Actually, you know, I'm climbing up this rung of this ladder, right? And I get to the top thing, I'm a great real estate investor and I noticed that it's up against the wrong wall. It's not really what I wanted to do. But no one ever stopped me and said, Hey, you know what's kind of insanity. So yeah, guys. So listen to Andrew guys, just look at multifamily to start with, you know, and just bypass all the headache. Now, wait, you said another interesting thing though, aside from that point is getting right into multifamily, which I make all the time, but you said something interesting also. You said, you know, get right into class B. That makes a lot of sense. The question is, can you achieve the same kind of or similar returns that you can in class C? Or is that just a myth that you can't in class B, which is why we should do class E? To me, it's a myth. Class B, at least in the experience we've had over the last six years, class B the returns are just as good, if not better, for a lot less work and headache. And then also, looking forward, everything looks great right now, but we're going to get a recession at some point, right? And who knows exactly when? My crystal ball is just as foggy as everyone else's, but it's going to happen. And Class C properties, that lower income demographic, when recessions come, those demographics tend to get hit the hardest and first. And so those probably start to struggle first. Whereas your more middle, you know, blue collar, B-class properties, if you look at historically, they tend to hold up really well in recessions. So part of the shift is for that. We're positioning ourselves for what we think could be happening in the market. The other thing is, is, you know, if you buy a C property for 20 a door and you fix it up and do an amazing job with it, yes, you can turn around and sell for 50 a door and hit that home run. But there is an equal amount of increased risk for doing that. It's much easier to fail. It's much easier to buy yourself an alligator property, which is a property that eats you alive instead of feeding you. The risk is higher. So you know, I would recommend people try to start in the B if you can. And the temptation is, it seems like almost everyone, including myself, starts in C because it's cheaper, but it's cheaper for a reason. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> Yeah, that's a very good point. Very good point. So you're a full-time investor, Andrew. So what does your perfect day look like? Perfect day is uh, wake up early, go down, surf for a few hours, let the traffic all fade away, come back, get to work in my home office. Uh, have <laughs> get to work in your home office. Yep. That long commute. Yep. 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 Meet the wife for lunch somewhere or do that at home. Pick up the kids out in the afternoon, You know, work some more, do family dinner, and then I actually like to work in the evenings, so I'll usually work till maybe 10.30, uh, sometimes 11 o'clock at night, and then get up and do it again. You know, I don't surf every day, obviously, but I do fairly regularly, and that's kind of what it looks like. That is awesome. What are you really excited about these days? I actually just met a guy at a conference who uh, had a property next to one I own, and we got talking about it. And he's like, yeah, I'm, th- I'm going to be selling that. And so I just actually sent him an offer yesterday, so that's pretty cool. I'm excited about that. I'm actually going to go climb and hopefully ski Mount Shasta this coming weekend. That's been on my bucket list for a while. So that's exciting. And I'm excited that I won the lottery. I was born in the United States. I live in the United States. I get to participate in you know the opportunities that are here. I mean, if you look at the history of the world, you know, from wherever we started recording it till now, the opportunities we have are unparalleled. Where someone with you know, no prior education or without prior money or without anything except the ability to listen to podcasts and get on the internet, someone like that can go learn a business that can make them millions in a relatively short period of time. That's an incredible opportunity. So, and it's fun improving these communities. And, you know, I've gone to properties and had tenants come out like, hey, are you the owner? And I'd say, no, but I work for the owners, which because the investors are owners. So that's true. 
One lady gave me a high five and offered me to come in for barbecue because we you know, improved the community. So it's a business that, that you can make good money at, but you can do good and feel good about doing it too. So Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your experience. So how can people connect with you? The company is Vantage Point Acquisitions, but it's just V like Vantage, P like Paul, ACQ.com. There's a contact us form on there. That goes straight to my personal email. So if you really actually want to have a conversation, that's the best way. If you just kind of want to be connected, there's LinkedIn, Bigger Pockets. I'm on both of those and uh, that works as well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your story, especially kind of getting over that first hump and that first deal. So thank you again. You're welcome. It's great talking to you, Mike. Hey, I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Andrew and I hope it inspired you. Here's some of the lessons learned here, key takeaways for me. And and the, the, the first is start now. There's a lot of talk about some kind of recession that's coming up and, you know, we're all expecting it. We're still buying deals. We're just buying right. Right. The main message that Andrew had was exactly the same. Start now. Okay. Don't wait. Don't wait. Who knows when it's going to happen? It's never the right time to do your first deal. And, you know, in the process, if you want to start now, just educate yourself. Start that process right now and educate yourself. And there's so many great programs out there. You can look at mine. It's called The Ultimate Guide to Buying Apartment Buildings with Private Money. Just go to themichaelblank.com and then click on products and you can see what we have there. And, you know, the key lessons to learn is to raise money. Okay. You don't need your own cash. There's so much money out there. All you got to do is find the deal and learn to raise money. And I spend a long time in my own course about raising money and everything you need to know about finding investors, what to say to them, SEC laws, operating agreements, all that kind of stuff. And the second critical skill is learn how to analyze deals. And uh, as, as Andrew talked about, you know, they buy one out of 100 deals. There's a lot of analysis going on. And so you got to know how to do it. Uh, but you know what? There's a way to do it that takes doesn't take uh, more than 10 minutes. And again, it's one of the products we have called a syndicated deal analyzer. In fact, Andrew has, has used it extensively and recommends it to other people. It's called a syndicated deal analyzer. It's included in the course. You can also uh, buy it separately. If you want, you can Google uh, bigger pockets. Um, people are blabbing about it there. Look, just learn how to rate, how to analyze deals and raise money. Those are two critical skills. Don't be afraid to partner. I mean, if you listen to all the other podcast episodes, a common theme is partner, partner, partner. In fact, we have a partnership program where if you find a deal, uh, we will partner with you on that deal and raise the money for it. We've done, we did four deals last year, totaling 527 units. We just closed 168 units uh, three weeks ago. It was a student deal. Uh, this one was in Memphis. We have 160 something in under contract in Huntsville, a student deal. And we have 56 unit in Chattanooga, which is also a student deal. So people are actually doing deals. Uh, in this case, they're bringing them to us. If you want to learn more about that, go to themichaelblank.com and click on partner. All right. So and the other key lesson that, that Andrew said is don't look for a home run, especially on your first deal. Okay. You, you, if you're looking for the perfect deal, it's not going to happen. Now, if you have, have a few under your belt, you've got a reputation, you can be a little more selective, but the first one is so important, right? And I keep talking about the, the importance of that first deal. That doesn't mean you should do a bad deal. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, you know, you got to take care of your investors. So the investor return is first and foremost. The only way you can cut your underwriting is on how much maybe you pay for yourself. So maybe less acquisition fees, less equity. Maybe you give up more to the, to the money partner just to get yourself into the deal. So you don't have to do a home run in your first deal. What's really, 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 really important as Andrew said today, is doing that first deal. And I don't really care what size it is. Now, Andrew kind of did a, a big one, a 92 unit. Look, I always advise people to go on two tracks. One is 
what is the edge of your comfort zone and let me go after that. So, right? so if, the, if your edge of your comfort zone is a duplex or a quad, then maybe you shoot for a 10 unit. Right, so look for that, and then you're going to raise the money for that. Then, and that is going to be your first syndicated deal. At the same time, you know, keep your eyes open for bigger deals. Right, you get a hundred unit, and you call up Andrew, or you call up me, you go to the MichaelBlank.com, click on Partner to find out what that process looks like. This is our deal desk process. Right, you and and you learn how to analyze deal and pre-negotiate, like Andrew said. Don't 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 send me or Andrew a marketing package, going, hey, found a deal. What do you think? Now don't do that. Don't be that guy or gal, right? You're just, you're just not being respectful of Andrew's time or my time in the process. So you got to do your upfront work. You got to analyze it properly. You got to research it properly. But then once it's a real deal, then by all means, bring it to someone like us or, or an Andrew. So just focus on your first deal. Don't get yourself all wrapped out of, bent out of shape about, oh my gosh, I need to control 200 units before I quit my job. Don't do any of that. Okay. So what you want to do is you want to look at your personal situation. You want to quit your job. Okay, great. What are your expenses? What are your expenses per month? Do you even know what those expenses are? All right. And once you know, is there anything you can do to cut them? Right. So if it's if your expenses are $5,000 or $7,500 per month, and you know that's kind of your what I call the rat race number. That's the number that you'd have to cover to, in order to quit your job. Great. So roughly how many units would you have to control for that? Well, um, if you syndicate a deal, every unit is going to cash flow an average of about $100 per month over the five years. So just use 100 for a round number. In the beginning, it's going to be less. And at the end, it's going to be more, roughly about 100, okay? So you need, you'd have to need about 75 units to cover $7,500. Okay, so now that you know that, how much money do you personally have? And who do you know, right? In other words, how much money could you raise? And from that, this is the process we kind of go through with our, with our coaching students is we try to craft what is your ideal first deal? So it has to be both achievable in the next 12 months and it has to be meaningful. Okay, so in this in this example, if, if I want to cover $75 a month, you know, a meaningful deal might be anything from a four to 10 unit. Okay, so if that's you, then focus like a laser on the four to 10 unit. Don't think about, you know, oh my gosh, I need to have 75 units. Just focus on that. So all of our all of my resources, all of our company's resources are really focused on helping you do your first deal and then helping you scale from that as well. So anyway, I was I hope I was really I really enjoyed speaking with Andrew. I think he's a great way to kind of make the complex seem simple. He was able to kind of rewind the time a little bit to go back what it was like for him to do that first deal and that's what kind of helps us and we're trying to get out to what do what what Andrew does and so we can surf every day. Sheesh. Anyway, I hope you found that inspiring. And don't just listen to this podcast, guys. I mean, I want you to go out and do something with it. And again, my resources are there at themichaelblank.com. I have a bunch of free resources. We have paid programming as well, but there's a bunch of other quality programs out there. I don't really care who you do it. I'd love to have you, but I, I don't care. I just want you to take action. So when you when you hang up here, when you're done with this podcast, go to my website, look at everything we have. Find someone that you feel you can get along with and then latch on to that person, learn everything that they can, and then just get started, okay? So if you love this podcast, leave me a review on iTunes and it exposes the show to more people. If you haven't done so already, we talked about raising money a lot on, on the show. Download my free ebook, which is also at themichaelblank.com forward slash ebook. Just download that. You're going to get way more information probably than you wanted to in that ebook, but hopefully it'll expand your mind just so you can see what's actually possible. So really appreciate you guys. I will catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, 
the secret to raising money to buy your first apartment building. Till next time.